You're listening to Vaporwave Radio. know because of the climate catastrophe that is breathing down on us that we need to radically reshape the economy and do it quickly. Well, now we've seen that we can't because it turns out that we can survive on the work of so-called essential workers. I think the thing that we're seeing is that the things that are staying open right now, the things that we need, are mostly the jobs that do social reproduction. So nurses are working, but also I talked to a a tomato picker from Florida, right, a member of the Coalition of Immokalee Workers. They're still working. The people who deliver things to you, the logistics chain, Amazon warehouse workers who have been showing us all how to be militant lately, that is social reproduction work. And so, so much of the rest of the economy, like, doesn't actually need to exist. We are pleased to release this special episode with Sarah Jaffe, author of Necessary Trouble, Americans in Revolt, which Robin D.G. Kelly called, quote, the most compelling social and political portrait of our age. She is a Type Media Center reporting fellow and an independent journalist covering labor, economic justice, social movements, politics, gender, and pop culture. Her work has appeared in the New York Times, The Nation, The Guardian, The Washington Post, The New Republic, The Atlantic, and many other publications. She is the co-host with Michelle Chen of Dissent Magazine's Belabored Podcast, as well as a columnist at the Progressive and New Labor Forum. She joins Labor Wave to discuss organizing and worker militancy amid a plague on this troubled day of celebration, our own holiday, the real workers' holiday, May Day. We appreciate those who are able to join us for the celebration release of our May Day episode with Sarah Jaffe, and please follow us and like us on our various social media platforms, SoundCloud, Spotify, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and share our content. We have an upcoming episode with Natasha Leonard, author of the Verso title, Being Numerous, Essays on Non-Fascist Life, and we will also be featuring an upcoming special interview with surprised local workers coming to you very, very soon. One of the things I was particularly taken by recently in reading Mike Davis was his explanation of Marx's view of history. Marx assessed that, of course, famously, that people don't make history in circumstances of their own choosing, but did believe that there is an opportunity to fast forward history at certain moments. Although sometimes history fast-forwards itself, whether you like it or not. Exactly. So a crisis could be a fast-forwarding, not of your own choosing, but at least in some direction. Yeah, there's the other quote that everybody's dropping, right, from Lenin about their, you know, weeks where decades happen. I feel like there's, you know, there's the Lenin quote and the Gramsci quote that I think Will Davies is joking, like, those they've been retired from overuse. I purposely didn't use that one. It's real, right, that, like, you get these moments, and what I think... Marx is talking about in that, and that was from the 18th Brumaire, I think, which I was just referencing the other day, because it was about, it's, it's the book where Marx was grappling with being wrong, 
which I think is a really, really, really important thing for all of us to do. I was just talking about how Mike Davis is always right. But like sometimes we're wrong about things and the left doesn't always do a great job of, of learning that. The labor movement doesn't always do a great job of learning that or really talking about it, which is why there aren't any good books on Operation Dixie. We should grapple more with the moments when we're wrong, but also the thing about sort of good strategy is it always has a, an understanding that like contingencies will happen. Sometimes a global pandemic will happen. Other times, you know, the financial system will collapse. Like all sorts of things can happen. The one constant that we learned from Marx is that capitalism is inherently crisis prone. And therefore, when one little thing goes wrong, like, you know, a lot of people having to temporarily quarantine themselves, everything can blow up really fast. And that presents both like a lot of real material misery for a lot of people and also opportunities to both point out that capitalism is inherently crisis prone and maybe a system that can't handle a month or two of quarantine isn't actually set up to take care of human needs. And also like an opportunity for workers who normally go to work in a pretty crappy job to begin with, right? If you work at a grocery store, you don't make a ton of money. Customers are often jerks to you. Um, You're on your feet all day. It's probably kind of boring when people aren't being jerks to you, right? It's not a great job on the best of days. But like now you're expected to go do that not a great job and you might die of it. And that makes people a little bit more likely to push back against what their boss tells them because they're like, you know, okay, I would do this for nine bucks an hour. Maybe if you're lucky, you work in the unionized grocery store and you make a little bit more money than that and you get paid vacation. But like now you're like, and you want me to do what? You want me to risk a slow, painful, miserable death on a ventilator? No thanks. That moment is providing a lot of really interesting resistance. Where do you think organized labor has been in all of this resistance? Like, how do you feel the preparation before the crisis hit was for organized labor? And what about its immediate response? Like, has it been positioned in a way to like take advantage of the fact that worker militancy is on the rise in places like grocery stores? I think the, the question, the answer there is basically like it's uneven, just like the labor movement has been for a really long time. In places where unions are strong, in unions where they are strong, the reaction has been pretty good. So there have been, you know, some wins for things like hazard pay and safety precautions at like Kroger grocery stores for thousands of UFCW members. And that is great. And then, you know, I spoke to one of their members from West Virginia. Um, he's a pharmacy technician and a Kroger. His name is Travis Booth. And he was like, you know, okay, so we got all this stuff. And they, I just saw today that they've extended all of that into May now, all of their hazard pay and these safety precautions and extra sick time. And he's like, all right, so our contract's up in August. We know they can do it. And we know they're raking in money because of the virus. So we better be preparing to make them put that in our contract, make these raises permanent, right? You've told us we're essential. You've told us we're heroes. Okay, pay us like it. In other places, you know, the the unions are being flattened by this thing. It was really hard to predict. So like Unite Here has lost over 90% of their members, I think, have lost jobs, which is just like, what do you even do with that, right? How do you even conceive of that? And even if a lot of these people are probably going to get hired back when the economy reopens, we don't know when that is. This whole thing is really uncertain. And yeah, like I can't even imagine what it's like to be at you know, your headquarters trying to think through this right now, right? And so there's, there's preparation in terms of like, okay, how do we build on the gains we've made before? There's preparation in terms of like rank and file activist nurses who are organizing these days of action around the country. Um, nurses and teachers have been two of the bright spots for unions for a while now. There's places like 
where we've seen teachers really strong too, like in New York City, you know, the mayor and the governor were having this sort of sniping back and forth match about when they were going to close schools and how and whose decision it was. And the teachers were just like, screw it, we're calling a sick out. You don't close the schools, we'll close the school. And that sort of came from rank and file militancy. And again, some from like an already organized core within the union and should say more is the name of the, the caucus, but like a lot of people who were not involved with that at all, but who were just like, once again, I'm not going to die for this job. And thinking about the unevenness of the labor movement, which I absolutely agree. The labor movement is such a patchwork of really strong, progressive, social justice-minded organizations that do a good organizing. And there are some things that like, you know, I, it, I don't think it's a reflection of Unite here that a ton of its members just got laid off. Like it's a reflection on the fact that, you know, they represent people in an industry that mostly thinks people are disposable. Absolutely. Yes. I, I think it's fair to always qualify that capitalist bosses are the, <laughs> the worst. <laughs> yeah. I don't want to make all my critiques of the labor movement seem as if I don't understand that ultimately the system is against all of us. But what practices, like what organizing practices do you think the good labor unions were employing before the crisis hit that made them more prepared? And then could you contrast that with some of the ones that were some of the bad or sloppy organizing practices? Like, can you give us highlights of the good and highlights of the bad? Yeah, I mean, I think the best is always when the members feel like they are strong and that the union has their back. When you have members that say, if I walk off the job, the union's going to be there for me, rather than like, oh, I have to call the union and make sure that they think it's okay that we, you know, because right now in a moment like this, again, like some of these, the walk-offs that we're seeing in like Amazon warehouses, which are non-union, but like anything like that, where people are confronting their bosses immediately in a moment where there's split second decisions being made about people's health every every moment that you're at work, you think about the way people feel empowered to take care of themselves rather than feel sort of scared and like, you know, they're on their own and they have to ask somebody's permission to act. So, you know, the places where we've seen militancy, we're seeing it coming from the workers and you're seeing that as part of union cultures or reform movements within the unions that stress that, you know, the rank and file are the union. They lead the union. What about in the places where things are kind of being decimated or the unions were just failing the show? The thing is that like, right, it's, it's always easier to shut a workplace down than it is to force it open. And it's always easier to strike from a job that you have than like strike to make somebody hire you or keep you on the job or keep a plant open, right? Like these are the challenges that we've seen. This is why manufacturing unions have been suffering lately, right? It's not just, and I, you know, good Lord, we know and everybody listening probably knows about the problems of the UAW lately. But like, it's also really, really hard to go on strike and force GM to keep a plant open. So like, there's things that could have been done better in the recent GM strike, certainly. But also, I don't know that they could have kept Lordstown open by strike. These are fundamental sort of challenges. And the same thing for Unite Here, like what leverage do they have if they're just going to lay everybody off? I genuinely don't know what the answer to that is. And that doesn't mean that like there might have been things that they could have done better. But like the challenge right now is there are industries where people are just going to say, we're going to get rid of everybody. And at the end of this, we might hire you back. And the only leverage you have there is sort of public opinion, which again, I think public opinion is going to be more favorable to tons of people getting laid off because of a virus than other situations, but it's it's not that strong a weapon, all things considered, 
in the face of, of the economy basically shutting down. I, I know you just acknowledged that it's hard to determine what's the right pathway forward or like what are the best strategies for right now, because absolutely these are crisis moments. Yeah, I mean, we're in tactics land, right? We're not like, I don't know if anybody, I mean, if Mike Davis had one, I, I would love to hear from him because if anybody did, he probably does. But like, you know, if anybody had written out a strategy for like in a global pandemic, when a third of the world is on lockdown, this is what the labor movement should do. I would love to hear from that person if they exist. If you were out there, you were a genius and can we be friends? But you're right. Like th- these are those moments where you're just like, oh, I don't know what the heck, like anybody planned this. So it is sort of, you know, a lot of things are, are flying by the seat of their pants. But also there's stuff like I was just editing an interview before we got on the phone here with one of the nurses who planned the day of action that they did yesterday, which was April 15th, as we're talking. And she's a nurse in Chicago, a member of NNU. Um, and she, you know, they've long been activists for Medicare for all for a single payer system. But what this moment is making them realize, she said, and I've heard this from other nurses too, is that a single payer isn't going to be enough. What you actually need is a fully nationalized system and the workers need to run it because they're the only ones who actually know how to run things around patient need and not God, I almost did the capitalist greed because it's just right there. It's hanging right there. That's the protest chances. But, you know, so we're seeing in real time also, like, the the thing that Joe Biden considers a, you know, super out there, impossible demand, single payer, is also not enough. And that's changing right now where these nurses' understanding of the system is like, you need, need to nationalize it. And Andrew Cuomo, who is the governor of New York that I have very, very little love lost for, has basically sort of socialize the hospitals in New York. They're doing things like taking them into some form of state control so that they can distribute resources to where it's most needed. So, I mean, you know, we say these things are impossible, but also they're happening. So we're in some ways running to catch up and in other ways, like leaping forward with the analysis. Absolutely. And I'm wondering where we can further some of these things that previously seemed impossible and now seem inevitable, but on our own terms. Like I'm thinking about a lot of debates within labor organizers and more like social strategy. And some of these I've, I've heard like Doug Henwood call it like anti-work debates where people push for like the four hour day and push against work as an imposition, which I, I am totally in favor of. Yep, work sucks. Yeah, work <laughs> sucks. And it's, it's true now. We've seen a lot of work that absolutely does not need to be more than four hours a day. Or done at all, right? Like how much of this work that has just been like shut down for however many months do we even need? I would argue confidently that we don't need any managers. I, you know, right? I mean, come on. But it, it is a fascinating moment, right? Because, like, we already know because of the climate catastrophe that is breathing down on us that we need to radically reshape the economy and do it quickly. Well, now we've seen that we can, right? Because, like, we are. Because it turns out that, like, we can survive on the work of so-called essential workers, right? And, like, there are things that we hope will reopen, right? I personally really miss this little Thai restaurant in my neighborhood, and I would like it to reopen, and I want to give them all my money. And, you know, I really miss my nails done, and I have not had a haircut since January. And so these are things that are closed right now that I really look forward to reopening, and I promise to be very, very nice to all the people that work in them when they do reopen. But then there's stuff that it's like, what is that even for? Um, You know, David Graeber calls them bullshit jobs, right? But like, I think the thing that we're seeing, and I interviewed Tithi Bhattacharya about this, she's the editor of a wonderful book on social reproduction theory, is that like the things that are staying open right now, the things that we need 
are mostly the jobs that do social reproduction, right? So nurses are working, right? But also, you know, I talked to a, a tomato picker from Florida, right? A member of the Coalition of Immokalee Workers. They're still working in terrible conditions, I might add. The people who deliver things to you, right? The logistics chain, Amazon warehouse workers who have been showing us all how to be militant lately. That is social reproduction work. And so, so much of the rest of the economy like doesn't actually need to exist. And one of my favorite stories that I'm looking at over and over right now is the IUECWA workers at, at GE in Lynn, Massachusetts, and some other places who have demanded to stop producing whatever it is they produce there. I got a very irate press or like, yeah, basically press release from a, a press guy at GE who was very concerned that I know that they make very important military equipment at this plant. And I was kind of like, yeah, well, your workers say they'd rather make ventilators. Do you have a comment on that? And he just like, he kept sending it back to me like more passive aggressively. The last time he highlighted like military equipment and I was like, read it, read it the first three times, don't care. Well, I'm thinking too, like what you're saying about Tuthi Bhattacharya's uh, highlighting how the reproductive work is really the glue that holds together all of society. I recall an uh, argument that Jay Macriev has made in a couple different forms suggesting that labor movement as an overall strategy needs to prioritize the sectors of teaching, nursing, and logistics. What do you think about that argument? And like, what would a platform that is appropriate for the times really be if that was our strategic viewpoint? I mean, I think the nurses and the teachers have already been doing it, right? They have been leading the charge already. You know, anybody who pays attention to any sort of anything to do with labor, even if that's just like excitedly tweeting about strikes, knows that teachers have been leading the charge, that nurses are, you know, consistently out in front of everything. And now we're, you know, I'm literally hearing from nurses that like we need to nationalize the whole system. We have an understanding already of what those workers would like to demand and that, you know, we talk about um, something that people call bargaining for the common good, right? Which like public sector workers, teachers unions in particular, have been really good at lately, which is making demands that are not just for the workers in that workplace, but that actually will affect the entire city. So I've been thinking about this one because it's related to things that are going on right now. And the, the Los Angeles teachers went on strike last year. God, that was just a little over a year ago, um, how things have changed. And one of their demands was that there is some land that's owned by um, the school system that should be used to build affordable housing because Los Angeles, like most cities in this country, has a massive housing crisis. And I was thinking of this the other day because I was talking to some folks who had occupied houses that are owned by the state of California in a different way. And the teachers union is supporting those people who are moving homeless folks into these publicly owned vacant properties because they don't have anywhere to self-isolate. When you talk about things that are, are being done that we've been told are impossible, people are putting homeless people in houses and hotels now because suddenly it turns out we can do that. I really appreciate the emphasis too here on like the rank and file workers kind of being in the forefront of all the creative and adaptable demands. Yeah, they know what's up. They know how to run the places that they work, and we should probably listen to them more, right? But, like, I think a lot of people, even within the labor movement, have gotten into this habit of seeing the members as, like, not really capable of running shit. And I just think that's so deeply wrongheaded. 
in like every way because I've never talked to a single person who could not run their workplace better than their boss. I 100% agree. You know, it's just, just true. And if they can run their workplace better than the boss, they could probably run the country better than Trump, which is really not saying that much. Also, I'd venture run the country better than Joe Biden. Also not saying that. <laughs> There's this understanding that like the union is kind of this thing that's over here and we service the members and we take care of the members. Maybe we like gently guide the members into the right decisions. And that's not to say there isn't a place for skilled organizers. I think there is. I think organizing is really hard. I'm not good at it. Well, I think a lot about the role of staff organizers too. Well, part of that is because I, I do work as a staff organizer for a labor union. And and by the way, I think you all should also be union members. I am not that kind of person who's just like staff unions are terrible, whatever. Like, no, I, I work is work. No, no, totally. Uh, I mean, actually, I should uh, be transparent. I am a member of the IWW and that is my actual official staff union representative. Well, that's very Oregon of you. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> God bless the Pacific Northwest. Right. It was voluntarily recognized because I happen to work for a good union. But I wonder a lot about the role of staff in developing and helping build and guide rank and file, but ultimately with the view of like inspiring worker insurgency. Like my question is always, how do you organize an insurgency in terms of like being within the labor movement? Because really, that's what I think rank and file empowerment is like ultimately the rank and file take the lead. And what that ends up looking like a lot of times is they, maybe they don't officially overthrow the union, but they pretty much shuck union leadership and shuck staff leadership and take matters into their own hands. And that looks like wildcat strikes. What do you think the role of a staff organizer should be? And what do you think it looks like to organize an insurgency? Oh my God. I mean, I'm not an organizer. So like, you know, there, there are many, many better people than me to ask that question of. But I think one of the things I mean, it's just like a go-to. And I think the thing, one of the things that makes good organizing also makes good journalism, which is just like treat the people you're talking to like they are as smart as you are and they know a lot of things you don't. And you might also know some things that they don't. So you meet people as equals who have information and skills to share back and forth rather than to be like, I am the organizer who is going to teach these people how to be militant. Because like, I mean, often like, there's plenty of militancy and people are sort of looking for help and support so they're not doing things alone, right? Like, show me working people who aren't pissed off these days, right? Like, mad capitalism sucks and it's been sucking even more for the last decade and now it sucks like the worst it's ever sucked since 1929 and maybe worse. There's a way that like a lot of unions have tended to sort of hire organizers out of, you know, colleges and people who are USAS um, students who get sweatshops for people who are not keeping up with my acronyms, activists and stuff like that. And all of that is wonderful, but also like it tends to create this idea that like these people know things and these other people don't know things, um, especially when you're hiring sort of college educated white people as organizers for a union that mostly represents black and brown women. There are a lot of ways that like dynamics in there can get really screwy real quick. So like, again, I don't, I don't know that I have particularly useful advice on how to organize an insurgency, but I, I, do just feel really, really strongly that like even a lot of people who work at unions do not think their members are smart and capable of running the union, the workplace, the country, the world. And like, I just do because <laughs> I think like, look at the people who are running everything. We couldn't be doing a much worse job in a lot of cases. I, I totally see the affinity and agree that the, the journalistic approach of like letting people speak for themselves, listening to them and letting them speak for themselves is largely one that I try to adopt 
advice that I'd been given from better organizers than me is just let workers speak for themselves. I get these calls sometimes where like somebody's been like press briefed within an inch of their lives. And it's just like, this is so boring. And this isn't what this person actually thinks. And they're being told this narrative where they have to just like sound really sad and pathetic. And it sucks. It's so disempowering. I talked to this woman the other day who's a fast food worker from North Carolina. And I was just like, so tell me what it was like when you first started thinking about going on strike. And she goes, well, I made a you know promise to myself decades ago that I would strike anytime I got the chance. And I was like, I love you so much. You know what I mean? Because nobody coached her to say that. She was just like, yeah, I know that this is how this goes. Right. And she was just like, we need to strike all the time. We need to strike more than just today. We need everybody to go on strike with us. And I was just like, hell yeah. Right. And like, that was, you know, I feel like that's not what anybody is going to coach them to say to a reporter. Right. But it was just the most like authentic thing that she could say. It was just like, obviously know that this is what you do. Well, I think it's such a refreshing contrast too to like the typical sloganeering of a lot of labor unions is it's really very conservative stuff, like fair wages. Well, what does fair wages mean under capitalism? I mean, I think a fair wage is the workers owning the means of production, but like that's not usually what other people think of. Yeah, but right, what is fair? What is the boss should pay their fair share of taxes, right? What does that mean? Like fair share, the top tax bracket up until Ronald Reagan was like 90%. Like that sounds fair to me. It still doesn't sound fair. I don't, I, I think we should take everything. But <laughs> right, like this, this, yeah, there are these sort of words that have been so focus grouped. And this is not just a problem for unions. This is also a problem for other organizations that I write about, like a lot of pro-choice organizations, for example. Everything has been so scripted and focus grouped and like and sort of narrowed down. And it's all about narrative. I was talking with a very experienced organizer friend of mine yesterday about this, actually. And he was just like, you know, <laughs> it's not about the narrative. It's about power. And like, yeah, there is a moment where like right now, as I was saying, like, I think that public support for any worker who walks off the job and says, my boss is setting up conditions where I'm going to get the virus has probably more public sympathy and more public support. And I think bargaining for the common good demands and things like that are really important to bring the community along with you. But that's not about crafting a narrative. It's about figuring out what people actually need and figuring out ways that you have power to meet it. It reminds me, too, of what I've been seeing recently about uh, certain supporters of the Bernie Sanders campaign. And I think I I don't want to chastise or deride people, but I think trying to lick their own wounds and saying, like, well, we've won the battle of ideas. And my thinking is, like, was that the fight, the battle of ideas? I mean, everybody, we have an abundance of good ideas, right? What we don't have is political organizations that allow people to act. Yeah. Well, that's the question. Um, I, I mean, I am always going to say that we put like, especially in this country, because I spend a lot of time in the UK lately and like their election cycle, like there was an entire general election in the UK in November and December, and it was over by December 12th. And this election had been going on for a year by that point. So our electoral cycle just like eats everything. And I think that that really sucks. But I also think that like, when we're talking about the battle of ideas. It's not just about ideas, right? Like it's it's when the nurses are saying, yeah, we were saying Medicare for all, but what we really need is actually a nationalized healthcare system, not unlike the one we have in the UK, but where the workers would actually run it rather than Boris Johnson being able to gut it. So that kind of thing, like it is important to be able to say like, okay, now the political discussion is a lot bigger. Like who would have thought 
2008, right, a Republican president would have sent $1,200 checks to everybody, even if they're all getting lost in the mail and the website tells half the people you can't get them and whatever. Like the fact that they even agreed to do that was a huge jump from 2008. And Obama was president in 2008. Well, he came in in 2009. But like, right, like he handled a lot of the, the recovery from the financial crisis. And like, we've already wrung more out of Trump than working people got out of Obama. Like, so we should pause on that for a second and say, like, what's different now? It's not just Bernie. Bernie is a symptom. I think that there is a tendency to sort of put the cart before the horse and say that, like, Bernie made things like the teacher's strikes possible, and that's just crap. It's not true. Bernie did not start the rank-and-file organizing in Chicago or New York or West Virginia. That's just not what happened. And... Bernie was able to go from being an obscure weirdo who was in the House for however many years to the Senate during that period of time and then become the, you know, sort of voice of everything in 2010 when he did his, you know, whatever it was, eight-hour speech that wasn't really a filibuster, but everybody watched on the internet, right? That was the moment Bernie broke. But still, like, nobody thought that guy was going to be president. He was literally the only one in Congress who would say anything. It is important to look and say, like, what is different now? And what is different now is not this one guy ran for president. What is different now is that there has been a revival of the strike. It's not big enough by far. The labor movement is still too small. But like Janice didn't kill public sector unions. It was supposed to. And four years ago when Scalia, was it four years ago when Scalia died? I don't know. And it makes me really mad that his son is running the labor department right now. But like, remember when Scalia died and we were all kind of like breathing a sigh of relief because that meant that the, um, wasn't Janice, it was the one before that wasn't going to, what was it called? It was called the Friedrichs case. Yes. The Friedrichs case was going to go 4-4 because we were all just like, oh my God, we're screwed. Right. And then we haven't been screwed. And that's basically because teachers have been gotten really militant lately. And so, you know, there was some more preparation granted in some ways because so we had died. People got a little bit more time to be like, oh crap, we need to do some internal organizing so we don't lose all our members when this thing comes down because it's going to. And like, hell, like I was on Janice Watch. I was, um, my editor at the New York Times wanted me to write a thing about the Janice decision whenever it came down. And so for that whole Supreme Court session, I was sitting in the coffee shop down the street from my crappy sublet, that's a long story, watching every morning to see if the Janice decision had dropped. And it was the last one they released that cycle. And like, you, we knew they were going to do it. We expected to hear it. Like I was at a thing where Mary Kay Henry spoke um, in March that year. And she was like, we expected to be the first one that comes because they want to defund as quickly as possible. And it was the last one that dropped that I got to guess that at least somebody in there was looking at the teachers unions going, did we screw up? I mean, we're going to do it, but wait a minute. Right? Like there has been a shift in power. And I think that it's not, again, it's not like a battle of ideas. It's, it's, there is leverage in a different way now. And it's really important, a friend of mine in the UK, James Needway, is always saying this, and I think it's really true. It's really important to understand that, like, Trump and Boris Johnson are not Republicans the way we understand, we've understood Republicans for the last 20 years, 40 years, maybe. They don't do things quite the same way. And that doesn't mean that we're winning because they're in charge now. It means that because everything is a dialectic, they will absorb some of our things, right, and try to take credit for them. And then figure out other ways to screw people over because they still ultimately work for capital. So I don't want to entirely dismiss the battle of ideas. I also want to say that it's never about ideas, it's about power. 
I fully agree with that position. And I don't really even like what I'm always concerned about is how often it seems like the awareness campaign in itself is misconstrued as the entire battle. But I wonder what you think about this take. My my impression, my pop theory is that you can correlate the decline of material power in the labor movement in the United States with the increase in the belief that everything is a PR campaign in terms of organizing. I mean, I think that's true. But like, my hot take is that the decline of the labor movement in this country started when they kicked out all the communists. So, um, and that is, that is a point that I will fight you on. And I have tried to convince, among other people, Bill Fletcher to write a book about it. Um, because I know that Bill agrees with me, or rather I agree with Bill because he's been doing this a lot longer than I have. And I really want to read the book that he would write about it. So if anybody who's listening knows Bill or is Bill, <laughs> write the book. Yeah, but right. And and so like the, the layers of things that got sort of unpicked at in within labor, right? So I keep referring back because I keep writing about fights for workers' control. This is why I'm obsessed with the GE workers who are demanding to make ventilators. Is that like there was a period of time in the early CIO when you had a lot of, you know, communists in the room who considered it the labor movement the place to wage the battle over control of the means of production. And even if that was not going to be a, you know, one and done revolution, it was going to be a slow struggle for more and more control on the shop floor. And the Treaty of Detroit, right, the big deal with the automakers that essentially, you know, locked in permanent or, well, not really permanent because they've been taking cuts for a while now, but regular gains in wages and regular vacations and, and benefits, you know, good health care, which is the reason we don't have single payer, and things like that, is they stopped fighting for sort of control of the means of production, right? They started fighting for a better life, which is like a totally, totally understandable thing that they did, right? I get why it happened. The miscalculation, I think, was that like, you thought that the boss was going to stick to the deal because like capital never stopped fighting the war. They just like pretended to stop for a little while. And then, you know, the seventies come around and there's a profit squeeze and all of a sudden the things that they've been sort of fiddling around the edges. And if you've read Lane Wyndham's book, it, one of the arguments that she makes is that, you know, through the seventies workers were still trying to form unions, but then now there was this massive union busting industry that had really come into its own. And so they started losing as many union drives as they want, you know? And so the, this, the question of like disarming in a fight that the boss never really conceded, I think it goes back to an understanding about what unions are for. Is this a fight that we can sort of have a detente in that will last for a while, or are they always going to try to find ways to crush us? And like the thing that coronavirus is making very clear is that, you know, for a lot of bosses, they just don't care if we die. Because like literally people are now saying that on Fox News, right? <laughs> like going on TV and saying like, well, two to three percent people are going to die, but like, it's cool. We'll reopen the economy. They're saying the quiet part loud, you know? I have a lot of questions that I want to ask you, and maybe I can combine a couple at once. In my estimation, the way I try to explain it to folks when I try to give my quick view of the labor movement history in the United States is that there's always been a left wing and a right wing of the labor movement. And what happened was the right wing defeated the left wing, and we're still suffering under the circumstances of the victory of the right wing of the labor movement. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting to me, actually, on that point, that the IUE CWA is the one who is leading the charge on, on this, uh, you know, 
let us make ventilators because the IWE or IUE rather is the thing that was created to to squash the UE. Right? The UE were communist run and the IUE was the thing that, you know, was created to raid them. And you can it's on their website. I mean it's not more nicely phrased than that, but like it's on their website. That they were they were formed to be an alternative to the communist run union. Um and the UE was pushed out of the AFL CIO and it still exists and its workers are still, you know, often have the best analysis of anybody you'll meet. But yeah, so I think it's really interesting that now in this moment, right, these workers who were, you know, were in a union that was on the side of, you know, bread and butter contract is the one who's making this demand that is much more than bread and butter. Yeah, I think it's important to highlight that it, just because the right wing defeated us doesn't mean that we can't regain and reclaim some kind of primary position within organized labor. But what I wonder is how Absolutely. Communists, anarchists, all the folks were repressed and like ousted from formal labor organizations in the past. But it seems like that has also resulted in a real abandonment of the left from taking organized labor seriously and trying to prioritize the need to engage and involve our bigger strategic plans with organized labor, maybe not necessarily just as at the center or forefront, but like as primary in our plan. And instead, what I see is people like highlighting how like I, I see a million arguments forever my whole life about we need to make the Democratic Party a leftist party or whatever. And I never see the same people or anybody else, maybe it's very marginal, saying the same thing about the labor movement. Like I think we could totally have a better chance at making the labor movement a left-wing overall movement than reforming the Democrats. What do you think about that? Well, also, I mean, it's a different thing, right? Because, like, the Democrats are not really an institution. They're a collection of, you know, grifters. <laughs> no, but, like I, I, like I said, I, I spend a lot of time in the U.K. lately, right? And, like, the Labour Party is a party. You can take power within it, like Jeremy Corbyn was able to do. You can get elected leader of the Labour Party, and suddenly you have thousands of people flooding in, and it's all kind of a mess right now, and there's a whole scandal about the party staff really resisting that that has just broken in the last few days. It's really fascinating if anybody likes to watch other countries' politics as a spectator sport, or less spectator in my case, but the Democrats are not a thing you can take over that way. There's no way to sort of, there's no majority vote for the DNC chair, and they don't have that much power anyway, right? So like when Keith Ellison ran to be chair of the DNC and was quickly squashed, there and there was a lot of crap in there. Actually, it really made me mad. And, and some people within the unions, I mean, Randy Weingarten came out pretty strongly against the things people were saying about Keith Ellison, and I was really proud of her for that. But like, there, you know, there isn't a, a structure to to take over and democratize because the Democratic Party isn't like a party the way the Labour Party is a party. So that's like that's really my set of you know concerns about that strategy. It's just like you can't do it. There's nothing to. There's no levers. It's a ghost. It's a bunch of rich people. And unions, whatever we might think of how some of them are run, are institutions that have levers of power that you can push and you can push on repeatedly. You can run for local office in your union. You can organize a new local of your union. You can, you know, be part of a campaign to elect somebody else president of your union. You can do all sorts of things. You can just, you know, go on a bunch of wildcat strikes and really piss off the leadership of your union. You can do lots of things. Um, but there are structures and rules for how you can take and use power. And also, like, you have actual leverage, which is the workplace, which is, you know, it's a much more dynamic location to contest for power than ballot box. 
one symptom of the left, in my opinion, kind of abandoning organized labor, I would say is the real lack of labor journalism in the United States. And I wonder if you agree with that assessment, but also why do you think there is such a lack of labor reporting, like serious labor reporting in this country? So the short answer to that is that we don't sell newspapers. The business section sells newspapers. And we are not particularly advertiser friendly, as I was saying to somebody else the other day, because if I'm writing a story about a big company, it's usually about how they're being crappy to their workers. And that does not make for good ad sales. If I have a story about whatever, the Coalition of Immokalee Workers, that doesn't make the people who use their tomatoes look great, right? Or the story about Kroger. Well, I mean, you know, the story about Kroger wasn't that bad because they were like, yeah, we want some good things, although we had to negotiate really hard for them. It wasn't that Kroger handed them to us out of the, you know, goodness of their heart. Amazon right now, right, people are going on strike left and right, and they are firing people, and that does not make for advertiser-friendly copy. So, I mean, that's the sort of political economy of the labor beat. And what's fascinating is the places that it survived, even now, you know, Josh Idelson works for Bloomberg because that's who will pay for labor reporters because the boss wants to know what we're up to. The Wall Street Journal has had a labor reporter for decades. It never stopped. The New York Times ran Steve Greenhouse out finally. But um, those are some of the reasons. And then there was just like you're saying, like I started trying to be a labor journalist in earnest in like 2008, 2009. And I was in grad school. The economy was collapsing. I was trying to figure out what the hell I was going to do with my life. And, you know, took to trying to figure out, like, what a credit default swap was and why it broke the economy and wanted to write labor stories. And at the time, I had to twist arms at places like The Nation to get to write labor stories. And now that is not that is not the case, right? I've got more. I've got two in edits at The Nation right now. But... At the time, it was not anybody's priority. And there were a few people like Liza Featherstone who had kept the beat alive, but it was on life support. And it was certainly not most people's full-time job. And the sort of rebirth of it to the extent that we have one now has gone alongside the rebirth of at least some militancy from the labor movement, right? It's the first time I can recall getting a call to do a labor story rather than having to beg was Wisconsin. And that was followed by Occupy and then the fight for 15. And then suddenly people would call me up and be like, hey, what's this thing that's going on? You write about that stuff, right? There's a case for it. And then the thing that's happened since then is that, you know, a lot of journalists have been unionizing in places that were previously non-union, new media, but also older media like The New Yorker. And that means that suddenly you've got a lot of smart young reporters who not only have like an awareness of their own class position, but like... You know, everybody at Slate knows what right to work means now, a thing that a lot of people still don't know, because the boss tried to put it in their contract and they nearly went on strike over it. So now they not only know what it means, but they like viscerally know what it means because they know what it would have meant to have that in their contract. And so that has done wonders for like labor reporting and commissioning and things, even from people who don't write about it themselves that often, but like they get why what I do matters now. There's still not enough. And the fact that I'm a freelancer, Kim Kelly is a freelancer, Michelle Chen is a freelancer, Tammy Kim is a freelancer, is because still not that many people want to put enough money into hiring experienced labor reporters full time. But we can scratch out a living. And that's better than it was when I started when I had to write things like the 10 worst Republican governors when I was working at Alternet. I have 
honestly, so many more questions I'd love to ask you, but I know that we have to be a little bit uh, more tight with our timeline here. So I want to ask you, I want to leave you with a quote from Mike Davis, going back to, again, my obsession with him recently, and then kind of get some thoughts from the quote itself, if you wouldn't mind. So in one of his more recent books, Old Gods, New Enigmas, he writes, it is not progressive impoverishment that usually generates revolutionary impulses, but mass unemployment and the sudden loss of hard-won and apparently permanent gains. So thinking about what Mike Davis identifies as the moments of revolutionary impulses, where do you see those impulses happening now? How, how much do you think organized labor can be a part of those revolutionary impulses in the face of mass unemployment? I think we reached over 20 million in this past week and the loss of gains that we thought were permanent. It's a really hard moment right now because like one of the things that's happening is that everybody is supposed to stay home. So it's really hard to do things like figure out what are tactics for raising hell when you're also trying to not spread the disease and the irony being that like, I don't know if you saw those pictures of the protesters yesterday, like pressed against the door demanding that they reopen Ohio. No, I didn't see that. It's really, I'll send it to you. It's really kind of, it's just somebody did a screenshot of it next to an image from The Walking Dead and it's really kind of creepy. But that's the thing, right? The people who are willing to sort of go out and do a, a protest right now and, and risk everything are the people who kind of don't believe that things are actually that bad. So that's hard. But at the same time, like, we are seeing in real time that, again, that, like, the economy can be changed very, very quickly. And a lot of this work is not necessary. And a lot of the things that we have been told over and over again are impossible are actually being done. And we're seeing that the people who are essential workers are a totally different set of people than we were told are smart and are worth listening to and are worth taking seriously and are worth caring about. And that's going to have a lot of effects on people in ways that I don't know what will shake out, obviously, because I am not the kind of witch who can see the future. But to think about what it means when we finally sort of lift the lockdown, but the economy is you know, people are saying like, oh, it'll just bounce back and it'll be fine and we can just like reopen things. That's not true. So what is going to happen in between there is going to depend on many different things. But, you know, if the Trump administration and the jerks in Congress who think that they don't have to come back till May aren't going to do anything else for people and people are not getting the checks and they're not getting their unemployment and they can't even get through to unemployment because the phones are so busy, people are going to get desperate and desperate people do a lot of things. And the labor movement can be helpful in terms of having a power analysis, understanding leverage, understanding how to make things stop and how to make things start, and also being an institution that can be supportive of people when they need things, because like people need things right now. Um, there are people who can't leave their house because they're old, they're immunocompromised, they're in any way more susceptible to coronavirus. And you know, mutual aid networks are springing up, but unions can be a source of support for people even when they're losing things. And it's a moment where the workers who are well-organized can take a leadership role and be, you know, more clearly aware of what people need than Trump or Cuomo or whatever. And I have no idea what's going to happen. It's weird and terrifying. And also it's proving a lot of things that we have long known correct right? From the scary ones, like the bosses will cheerily just let a bunch of you die rather than, you know, suffer a loss in their profit. 
or the accurate ones, which is like a lot of this work is crap and we don't actually need to work that hard in order to have a livable world. Our guest has been Sarah Jaffe, one of the co-hosts of Belabored Podcast from Descent Magazine, as well as a freelance journalist for a number of great publications. I really appreciated this conversation. I actually think this was probably one of the more inspiring conversations I've had since this pandemic. Oh, I try to be inspiring. I don't know if I'm good at it, but thank you. I have uh, me chewing on a lot, and I'm sure our listeners are going to really appreciate the content as well. I mean, you start and end with Mike Davis. You give me great things to jump off of. Like we